I hope your Thanksgiving was good. I hope you had a chance to spend some time in thankfulness to the Lord. And now we turn to Christmas. 2022 is almost gone, and I'm still having trouble, like I mentioned earlier, believing that it is the Advent season. Four Sundays from today, we will celebrate Christmas. Four Sundays from today is December 25th. And we are focusing on building our lives on the rock. Here's the picture I want you to remember, the rock of Gibraltar. That is what I want you to think of as we talk about the words of Jesus put in to practice. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We are studying the very words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The very words that that verse that was just on the screen refers to when it's talking about the words of Jesus put into practice. We are literally studying the rock upon which we are to build our lives. Lord God, we need to hear from you. We desire to hear from you. God, we want your word to speak to us. We want your truth to come out of your word and into our heart. We don't want our thoughts to go into your word. We want to hear out of your word into our very hearts. God, that only happens if we recognize and submit to the movement of you, Holy Spirit, amongst us. So that's what we ask, Lord, that you would move and interpret and help us to understand your word. Amen. Well, I'm not sure about you, but last week's message that we heard right here one week ago feels like more than one week ago. <laughs> I, I, I've been to Fargo and back. I've eaten more turkey than I probably should have eaten. I'm pretty sure I've put on a little bit of weight. Don't judge me. But I, I'm thinking that um, it feels like a long time ago when I talked to you about the words of Jesus. Last week was, as a reminder, a challenging message. It was challenging for me to preach. I'm guessing it was a bit challenging for you to hear. You may recall that we studied Jesus' difficult statement in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You can put this on the screen, Dave. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What are the followers of Jesus to do with the Old Testament? Do the followers of Jesus still have to follow the rules of the Old Testament? That was the question I attempted to answer, or at least start to answer, last week. We were able to at least begin the discussion of this very large issue last Sunday, 
I hope you didn't get lost in the weeds last week, but there is the possibility that you felt like you were in the weeds. For 2,000 years, Christians have been wrestling with this question. And there have been a wide range of proposed answers. And those answers, they range from casting the Old Testament completely aside, all the way to following the entire Old Testament as if we are still the nation of Israel. And there's a range in between those two. We talked about that last week. And our God, who is perfect and unchanging, wrote the Old Testament laws to the people of Israel. They reveal God's intent. Finally, I want to remind you of the four ideas that I gave you for interpreting how the Old Testament law applies to Christians today. You may remember these. Number one, remind yourself that the Old Testament law is not our law. It is not my law. We are in the new covenant. We are not under the old covenant. We are not legally bound to the Old Testament law as if we are ancient Israel. Number two, determine the original meaning, significance, and purpose of that law. In other words, we need to search for what was the point. Why did God issue a law? What were God's motives at issuing it? Number three, determine the theological significance of the law. In other words, what does the law reveal about God's ways? And then number four, Determine the practical implications of the theological insights gained from this law for our own New Testament circumstances. Now, that's a lot. If you weren't here last week, as I can see many of you weren't, I encourage you to go back and watch that. You can go to YouTube and watch it because there's a lot to unpack in those four statements. Today, we're going to continue with Jesus' words in the Sermon in the Mount as our guide. And I've taken pains in this first five minutes of this message to remember what we talked about last week because this week applies directly. To begin with, last week time limited me from telling you something very important about this subject. Any of the laws of the Old Testament that are restated in the New Testament are binding upon us. So, if there is an Old Testament law, one of the 613 I talked to you about last week, that is restated in the 27 books of the New Testament, that restatement of that law is legally binding upon us. I didn't say that last week because I didn't have time. I already went over my allotted time, and I try to stick to that. But that makes a big difference, doesn't it? So if it's an Old Testament law restated in the New Testament, then we are legally bound as a recipient of the New Testament covenant. We are legally bound to follow it. Let me put that another way. Jesus ushered in God's kingdom, and he has told us clearly how to live as citizens of that kingdom. Now, that sounded like a different statement. 
but it's actually the same. You see, Jesus and his apostles have told us how to live in his new covenant. We, as citizens of God's kingdom, in this and under this new covenant, are obligated to follow, to obey. But remember what Jesus said. Now I'm going to read this again, because now as you think about this, I want you to hear again these words in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, look carefully at that verse. That is a really amazing statement by Jesus. Do you see it? Because if you know who the Pharisees are, or I should say were, you will realize that that is a big deal. Because the Pharisees, I think you could make a case, were the most religious people in all of human history. They followed the Old Testament law, the 613 laws of the Old Testament, to the T. In fact, the Pharisees were so careful not to violate the 613 laws that make up the law of Moses that they actually created an entirely new set of rules that created a buffer around the 613 laws of Moses. They called it the oral law. They also called it the tradition of the elders. You hear Jesus throughout the Gospels talk about the oral law of the Pharisees and or the tradition of the elders. That oral law, that tradition of the elders, that was the the rules around the 613 laws that made it so you never even got close to violating one of the 613. These people were religious. The most religious people, I think I would argue, in the history of mankind. Now look at that. Imagine you're sitting there and you know these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, because they tell you every day how you're supposed to live your life. So these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, these Pharisees, they're in the crowd with you when Jesus says this. And Jesus says of these religious absolute fanatics, he says to these normal regular people, Unless you're more righteous than them, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine what those Pharisees must have done in that crowd? Bristle. How dare 
he say that? Now imagine what the people must have said. Okay, you're sitting by a Pharisee. (laughs) Okay, okay. Jesus says that. And you must have been like, did he really say that? How are we supposed to do that? You notice how we just breeze over verses like this? Don't give them a second thought. Look at that verse. Think about the setting. Imagine that moment. And have your mind blown at what Jesus just did right there. (laughs) And you would have thought, as a regular member in that crowd, that's not possible. Now, please take your Bible out. If you didn't bring a paper Bible because you like to look at the screen, that's fine. But I would like you to take a paper Bible out right now. So actually, if you don't have one along, grab one from the seat in front of you. I really want you to look at something. So please do grab a Bible out. Take a look. I want you to look at something. And I can't show you on the screen. Okay? So, go to Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to take a look. So everybody turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'll wait a moment for you to get there. First book of the New Testament, three quarters of the way, Matthew chapter 5. All right. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that there are section headings. Verses 1 through 12, those are known as the Beatitudes. I preached about that a few weeks ago. The, the Beatitudes are the, the blessed R's, right? Blessed are, you know, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? Those are the blessed R's. Then there's a section, verses 13 through 16, salt and light. I preached on that, remember? Citizens of God's kingdom should be as salt and light in the world. And you do that by living out the Beatitudes. Those go together, okay? And then you see the next section, it should talk about The law fulfilled. Do you see that? Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament law. He did not come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. Do you see that? And now, if you continue on, you'll see verses 21 through 48. There are sections. Do you see the sections? Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, an eye for an eye, and love for enemies or something like that. Bibles have a little bit different designations. And remember, those, those column headings, those are not inspired by God, okay? The column headings were added just to bring some clarity to the separation, the structure of the Bible. So the column headings are not inspired by God, okay? That's why they can be sometimes very different between different Bible translations. So, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, an eye for an eye, love for enemies. Here's what I want you to get. That's a long section of Scripture. You see all that? 21 through 48? There's like six different sections of Scripture right there, but this is what I want you to get. All six of those sections go together. They are one section. They all fit together. And in those six sections, murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for eye, love for enemies, all six of them fit together, and are the same idea. Jesus is doing the same thing in all six. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, 
They should go together. Like you, we shouldn't stop at one section. Now I'm going to have to unless you want to be here till one. Does anybody want to be here till one? Nobody raised their hand. Sad times. I don't expect you to be here till one. So obviously I'm not going to preach through all six sections today because we would be here till one. But I need you to know before I start, that's not the way I really want to do this. I would rather preach them all together. They're meant to be together. Now, if you study the Sermon on the Mount, we've got a name for the Beatitudes, right? This section, verses 20 around through 48, actually has a name. I never pronounce it right, so I've really got to think carefully before I say it. Okay? The name that is given to this section of Scripture is called the antith—I almost said it wrong again—the antithesis. That's the academic name if you want to refer to this. You've probably never heard that before. It sounds like a fancy name. I always call it the antithesis, but that's wrong. It's the antithesis. That's what it is. Okay. The word antithesis—it simply means a contrast between two things. All six of these sections are a contrast between two things. The contrast is the way the Pharisees interpreted it and the way Jesus interprets it. It's a contrast between two things. They are examples that Jesus gives. All six of these are examples that Jesus gives to prove that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament law, not abolish it. So, I want you to to remember now, I want you to remember, the purpose of the antithesis is to explain and give actual examples of Jesus saying he fulfilled the law. Did you get it? So, these are literal examples of how Jesus fulfilled the law. That's the purpose of this. And they have commonalities. So, here's the commonalities. If you've got a highlighter and you've got your your Bible, here's something to highlight, or if you're using your phone, I want you to highlight this, because this is the same in all six, okay? The first thing is this, all six of them begin with, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said, okay? All six of them start with that. Then, after you have heard that it was said, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament law of Moses. He quotes a law, one of the 613, sometimes two of the 613, okay? So, one, you have heard that it was said, then Jesus quotes a law, and then the third thing that's that's the same in all six of these, Jesus says, but I tell you, okay? You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. That's why it's called the antithesis. He's comparing and contrasting two things. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Jesus is going to literally show us how he fulfills the law. That's what this is. And in the process, he's going to show us literally how our righteousness can surpass the Pharisees. Okay? Are you there? Are you excited? Yes. You're like, well, it seems like I've read this before and I don't remember all that stuff. Yeah, that We need to observe deeper. All right. So, 
All of these six follow a pattern, and we're only going to get through one of the six today. But remember, they're all meant to be taken together. Okay, now as we look at these, it's helpful to remember that Jesus, remember what he's doing. He is uncovering, explaining, and teaching how he is fulfilling the Old Testament law, and he's also helping us understand how the Pharisees have gotten it wrong. He's doing both of those things together. He's saying, I'm going to explain how I am fulfilling this law, and in the process of explaining that, I'm going to show you how the Pharisees have it wrong. (laughs) Thus, the Pharisees' righteousness is faulty. Let's begin. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. By the way, We're starting the Advent season with a good old-fashioned sermon on murder. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. (laughs) This is going to take a little bit of unpacking, isn't it? But here's an interesting thought. Just, I'm just going to let this one out there and you guys think about it just for a bit. Jesus begins his explanation of how he fulfills the Old Testament law with the sixth commandment. Isn't that odd? What a strange place to start. Now, the sixth commandment, in case you're not familiar with it, but you probably are, It's quoted in two places in the Old Testament directly, but also numerous other places it is referred to. But those two places are Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Here it is. You shall not murder. And then it's restated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. (laughs) See how just the Exodus to Deuteronomy changed? Same thing. So back to Matthew 5, 21. Jesus is saying, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? So how is it that we are going to learn how to follow this command in such a way that our righteousness will surpass the Pharisees? Because that's what Jesus is doing right here. Hmm. Now we're beginning to ask the right question. Did you hear that? The right question is, how are we to fulfill this law in such a way that our righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees? That's the right question to ask. 
Well, Jesus is about to go deeper into the law of God than the Pharisees ever went. And by deeper, I mean that Jesus is going to get beneath the exterior of this one law, and he's going to get into the interior of it. You see, Jesus is searching for the intent. What was the intent of this law? And I'm talking about God's intent. What was God's intent in giving that law? Do not murder. You shall not murder. It was God, after all, who gave this law to Israel. Make sure you know that. Moses didn't give this law to Israel. God did. Moses just was the transporter. God gave this law to Israel. Jesus is mining. He's digging for the intent of God. You see, Jesus is seeking to show how citizens of the kingdom of God can understand God's intent for this law in such a way that they can apply it to their lives. Let me put that another way. If God is your king, how are you to live? Specifically in this case, Jesus is saying, if God is my king, how am I to interpret and apply in real life God's command You shall not murder. So, what was God's intent? Okay, well, first of all, it's helpful to know that the Hebrew language has seven words for killing, to kill. But the word used in Exodus 20 is one of those seven, a very specific word. The word is murder. And the implication of that word in Hebrew is premeditated and deliberate murder. Okay? So whenever you quote the Ten Commandments in Sunday school, it is not thou shalt not kill. That is not the correct way of saying it. Because there are appropriate ways to kill people. There are. Like self-defense. There are appropriate ways for the government to kill people according to Exodus chapter 21. As punishment. There are appropriate ways, at least accidentally killing people, right? Those are all different than premeditated murder, okay? So the the word is premeditated murder. So going back to Matthew 5.22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, Is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Let's break this down. First, look at the beginning of that. What does it mean to be angry with his brother? What is Jesus referring to here? Is Jesus Jesus saying, all anger is wrong? No, he's not saying that. And the way I know he's not saying that is because Jesus got angry. Remember Jesus in the temple? Let me just remind you of the story. John 2, 13 through 16. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Jesus was mad. He was angry. Okay? Righteously. 
Jesus had righteous anger. So how does this fit together with where we're at? Well, I think looking in, again, the author John, but this time 1 John chapter 3.15, we get an answer. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now look at that. That's the same author, John the Apostle, that wrote about Jesus flipping tables and making a whip and driving people out of the temple. You see, there's a, there's a difference there. There's a difference between righteous anger and murderous anger. Going back to Matthew 5.22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. That kind of anger that Jesus is referring to is the kind of anger that makes you want to kill someone in your heart. Now, those of you that have got a problem with road rage, if you have been, John's over there, if you have been so angry with a driver that you had the feeling of killing them, that you, it crossed your mind to just do that police maneuver where you fishtail their butt off into the ravine by the bridge? That's the kind of anger I'm talking about. The kind of anger that gives you murderous intent, even if you don't follow through with it. That's the anger we're talking about. But what is Jesus getting at here? How could he possibly say that anger, even murderous intent anger, is the same as actually murdering somebody? How could that possibly be? Now remember, let me remind you, Jesus is looking for God's intent. So what is God's intent regarding murder? Two passages from Genesis will help us understand this. The first goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. God's original intent in creation. Verses 26 and 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God is in every human being. And now, to fully understand this idea, you need to tie this together with Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. There is a connection between God's image in each person with murder as the explanation for why murder is wrong. Did you get that? The image of God in us is why murder is such a problem. Why murder is such a grievous sin. And that verse is key right there. The problem with premeditated and deliberate murder is that it disregards the image of God inside that person. The problem with being murderously angry with someone is the same. It disregards the image of God inside that person. Do you see? Jesus has gone into the intent behind the law. Thou shalt not murder. And found that there's much more there than just actually killing someone. 
You see, having murderous intent means you don't care about God's image in them. A quote. When we are inappropriately angry with people, we attempt to take their identity and value as God's creature away from them, the ultimate form of which is the physical act of murder. Having murderous intent in your mind, in your anger, means you have completely disregarded God's image in them. Do you see the connection? Going back to Matthew 5.22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. But then Jesus goes on to say, Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka? What is that? Well, Raka is a transliteration of an Aramaic term. A transliteration is when you take a word in one language and just kind of use that word or the sounds of that word in a new language. So let me tell you what Raka means in Aramaic. Empty-headed. Raka means empty-headed. Calling someone empty-headed removes their dignity from them. Where does that dignity come from? God's image inside them. You are, in a sense, murdering their character. Note, name-calling is not okay. Calling someone a fool is a significant insult. Consider the book of Proverbs. There are dozens, actually hundreds of verses in Proverbs that say fools are not of God. So if you call someone a fool, what you're saying to them is, you are far from God. Let me translate that for you. When you call someone a fool, when you say they're empty-headed, you know what you're really saying? I, I got to be careful. There's still a couple kids in here. Okay? So you're really saying, go to hell. Citizens of God's kingdom would never wish that on anyone. Do you understand that? And why not? Why isn't it okay for us to say, you fool, you empty-headed moron? Why isn't it okay for us to tell someone to go to hell? Because speaking to someone in these ways displays what you have in your heart. And that display, if you say it, if you do it, exposes everyone to the fact that inside your heart is someone who desires one of God's image bearers to be eternally separated from Him. A citizen of God's kingdom would never want that. Ever. Think about 2 Peter 3.9. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's desire is that everyone would come to repentance. Which means, as citizens of God's kingdom, who have literally died to ourselves and been reborn as citizens in this kingdom, our old is gone, the new is here. We will match the king's attitude. And if you are telling that to people, you are displaying that you don't match the king's attitude, thus displaying you are not a citizen of that kingdom. Citizens of God's kingdom do not wish death on anyone. And we certainly, certainly do not wish to consign anyone to eternal punishment in hell. The very act of wishing this upon someone is completely, categorically against who we are. It means your identity is not Christ, if that's what you say. You see, who we are says whose we are. Thinking and speaking this way displays what's in your heart. And Jesus isn't done yet. Verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Notice, this applies to citizens of God's kingdom who come to a realization that a brother has something against you. Did you get that? It's not the other way around. If you have caused your brother to be angry, it's your responsibility to go to them, not to wait for them to come to you. Do you see that? This is urgent enough, by the way, that it's worth stopping worship for. I've always thought, since I was in seminary, when I had to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, and I memorized this passage, I thought to myself way back then, someday the Lord's going to have me preach on this passage. I wonder, will anybody get up and leave the moment they realize what I've just said? Because you ought to. You ought to. If you've made someone else angry and you have not attempted reconciliation with that person, you should leave right now. You won't because you'll be embarrassed. Is embarrassment what you're supposed to be worried about? What are you supposed to be worried about? Let me translate this. If someone is angry with you, it is more important for you to go to them and attempt reconciliation with them instead of staying in church. Thank you, Zach, for being bold enough to <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> so how in the world does this relate to murder? Think about this now. What does this have to do with murder? And Jesus, of course, would say, 
everything. Why? Again, we've got to go back to God's intent with the you shall not murder command. God values human life. Can I get an amen? I'm going to say that again. Let's try that again. God values human life. It is valuable because of God's image in every human being. It's valuable. God's image resides in that person that you have caused to be upset. And it is valuable enough for you to get that right before you come and sing songs in worship to God. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? This lack of reconciliation that we just live with because we're waiting for the other person to come to us is categorically against your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's murder. Reconciliation matters to God. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Reconciliation matters to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Reconciliation matters to God. It matters enough that Jesus would tie this idea together with murder. And then back to Matthew, verses 25 through 26. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And here again, Jesus continues with this idea of reconciliation. Do you understand? I'm, I'm going to quote this so because I I, this idea is so profound. It's, it's from a commentary that I have. Jesus' disciples are to seek a kind of reconciliation that creates friendships out of adversarial relationships. Our very identity as citizens of God's kingdom is such that our goal is to create friends out of enemies. We are not to seek revenge. We are to seek Reconciliation, as much as it depends on us, we're supposed to do that. And much of it does depend on us. You see, relationships matter to God. Citizens of God's kingdom value people because of their intrinsic value. Citizens of God's kingdom value relationships because God values relationships. 
citizens of God's kingdom are not just concerned with not murdering people. We are also concerned with nurturing relationships and helping others find God. Everything else compels. Whatever you are angry about, if you are murderously angry with someone, you need to get that taken care of now. It's affecting your citizenship, and that should cause you to sit up straight. So here's the bottom line as I conclude this sermon. And this is the bottom line for all of what Jesus is saying about the way that he has fulfilled the law. You ready for this? Our intent and our motive matters. As much of and perhaps even more than actually committing the sin. Intent and motive matters. You see, Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament law in such a way that we must understand that our inner intent and our motives are as important as the actual action. The way we think about others, the content of our heart matters. It matters enough that Jesus has connected these ideas with the very act of murder. How can I say that more strongly? And so then I have to ask you, and I need to ask myself this question, because this is where this leads us to. How is your inner intent? What are your motives? Citizens of God's kingdom care about others in such a way that they do not become murderously angry with them. When you see people, even people that drive you insane, what you will see as citizens of God's kingdom is the image of God in them. Mere external obedience. If you think you're good just because you haven't murdered anybody, like literally murdered them, if you think that you're good, that you've set, checked that one off the list, but you hold all kinds of bitterness and rage inside your heart, you're a murderer, and so am I. And by understanding this full intent of God regarding murder, our righteousness will surpass the Pharisees. What do you need to change in your life? Hmm? What do I need to change? Are you murderously angry with someone? Do I need to go into politics right now? Or is that not okay to go into? Because there's a whole lot of that going around. Don't do it. Don't do it. Is someone angry at you that you need to be reconciled with and you haven't gone yet? Go. 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 Attempt reconciliation. 
Now, of course, that requires a transaction of two people. They may decline. And then that is on them. But you need to go. I need to go. That's what we're called to do. You see, Jesus has now shown you what is required of you as a citizen of God's kingdom regarding you shall not murder. One of 613. <laughs> the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at five more. Five more of the Old Testament laws that Jesus has fulfilled. It's going to lead us right into Christmas. So now I ask you, I commend you, I send you, go and live as citizens of God's kingdom. Amen.